those of us who have any level of quote unquote success that have ADHD, it's not because we're just gritting through and making ourselves miserable doing something for some, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow five years from now. We have we're we do it because it doesn't feel too much like work. Like we enjoy the process. I mean, this is fun for us to talk about. Like this is energizing. It's like we're not we're not putting on interest. We're not putting on excitement. Like it's just it naturally has come. And so all a lot of successful aged years do is just figure out where that natural wellspring of motivation is where that natural fuel is and just find a way to leverage it rather than try to fit their motivation into some pre-described goal. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Taking Control, the ADHD podcast on True Story FM. I'm Pete Wright, and look right over there. It's Nikki Kinzer. Hello, everyone. Hello, Pete Wright. Hi, Nikki. Can I just make one comment about your appearance today? Okay. (laughs) I don't think you're sick anymore. I'm not. You look great. Your (laughs) eyes are bright and shining. You sound like yourself. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Yeah. Are you is your family like you're their home? You did. You kicked it right to the curb. Everybody can be around you now. Yes. Oh yes. Delightful. Delightful. Welcome. Welcome back to the land of the living. Thank you. So glad you're here. We have a great show today. Um, Aaron Croft is is joining us. He is uh, the uh, brain behind HiddenADHD.com. And uh, Aaron's going to talk to us about so much, mm-hmm. so much. What you don't know as you're listening to this is we've already had the conversation. So we know what Aaron is going to talk to us about. And it's so much, y'all. So much. And it's Mostly, great. It's fabulous. And you have to stay yeah. to the end because... Yeah. There is so many different topics that we touch uh, touch on and all the way to the end. Yeah, all the way to the end. And um, uh, it is really, we're talking about um, education and shame and the the systems and, account and, and coping mechanisms that we put into place to find our way towards success from high school to higher education to postgraduate education. Uh, he has uh, done it all. And, and I think, you know, I wanted to, he's, he's done a lot of podcasts and I, it was important to me that we lean in on some things that were important to me that I hadn't heard him talk about in other shows. And I, I think we did that. I think we did that. So if you live with uh, inattentive in particular, um, this is going to be a great conversation for you. And I hope you see some of yourself in some of our conversation with Aaron Croft. Before we dig in, uh, head over to TakeControlADHD.com. You can get to know us a little bit better. You can listen to the show right there on the website or subscribe to the mailing list right there on the homepage. We will send you an email each time a new episode is released. You can connect with us on Twitter or Facebook at TakeControlADHD and maybe, maybe TikTok because Nikki's, Nikki's doing a whole thing now. She's got that the That is so dance. not true. This yeah. is fake news. <laughs> Then, then you belong on TikTok. No. I am uh, introducing. <laughs> I'm. I'm sorry. I'm interrupting your thing, and it it's all fake, fake. Fake news broadcast. Uh, it, well, the the really important part, the part that is not fake, is uh, you, you know, if you if you love this community, if you love the show, if you've been a part of the show for any amount of time, head over to Patreon.com/slash/TheADHDPodcast and uh, become a supporting member, and you will learn all about the different levels, the tiers that we have. You can join us for happy hours. You can join us for 
uh, Coffee with Pete, where we talk about technology and systems uh, once a month live in Discord. You can join Coaching with Nikki, where she gives you real life uh, ADHD coaching. Uh, once a month, you get a live Nikki, like a live Nikki coaching you. Uh, and not even a sick Nikki, a sicky. Uh, that it, it all comes, learn about all about our tears and, and know that becoming a member supports this show uh, is, and, and what we do here and what we've been doing here for over a decade. Um, we, we couldn't do it without you. So thank you, everybody, for uh, being a patron, for uh, supporting the show. And now... Um, head over to patreon.com slash the ADHD podcast. That's what you should do. Pause the show, go over there right now, and then come back and we'll talk to Aaron Croft. Aaron Croft is here with us today. Uh, Aaron is an ADHD coach and uh, the originator of his very own Smash productivity system. Very excited to hear a little bit more about that. But mostly, I just want to say this and see if it sounds familiar as we talk uh, about and to Aaron. One, dropped out of college twice before eventually graduating, uh, failed out of his first seven jobs, was broke, divorced, and earning minimum wage at 33 auspicious beginnings to our guest, Aaron Croft. Welcome to the show. Wow. Thank you for that glowing introduction. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Right? I know. I can't wait to hear how that came to where you are today. So that's fantastic. We're building drama, y'all. We're building drama. drama. This is the narrative arc that we're we're leading you uh, through here. It's very exciting uh, because I think... It actually uh, reflects the experience of a lot of folks who live in our community, who live in our community online. I, I, um, <laughs> I, I think it really does. It certainly hey, reflects Pete's, my own. Pete Nikki's metaverse. Yeah, it's <laughs> right. That's there. metaverse. Yeah, yeah, that's where we are. I, I'm really excited about it because you know I've been listening to a bunch of of your uh, other uh, guest. Uh, appearances on different podcasts and and on um, uh, the you know our ADHD community circle websites uh, and uh, I love your story because it's so uh, it, it just is so relatable to me right it's so relatable because I was a, a, a diagnosed as an adult and I remember the confusion that came from my early years and I think what really jumps out to me in your story is there is this conflict that exists between our own internal desires for success and the reality of like slamming into the brick wall of shame and, uh, you know, that that hits us when we try to achieve those things before we really understand our relationships with our own brains. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, you, you nailed it in that one sentence, right? I mean, and what, what I find so disheartening and confusing for so many ADHDers that go undiagnosed into adulthood like us uh, is that, you know, I remember sitting there as a kid and I wanted to get my homework done. Yeah, I wanted to be able to read the book cover to cover. And mm-hmm but I wasn't doing it right. I couldn't get my brain to do it. And so, you know, my mom's sitting there like, well, Aaron just thinks he's better than everyone else. And he doesn't have to play by the rules. And, you know, I'm searching for an explanation, but in the absence of an ADHD diagnosis, there wasn't a good explanation. And so eventually the explanation just becomes, well, you know, 
there's something wrong with me, right? Like I'm the source of these problems. Maybe I, I, I must be lazy and I must just be too arrogant to do the work because, you know, I want to, and yet I'm not doing it. So, you know, how, what, what makes sense here? Talk about your relationship with your parents though, though. I mean, your, your family relationship in, in cementing some of those feelings early on for you. My dad was, uh, not ADHD in the least, you know, just, he just, whenever you want to do something, he just did it. He was a successful physician. He started his own practice. And, you know, so he would just say like, well, mm-hmm. Aaron, just sit down and do it. Have some self-discipline. Yeah. And kind of like, mm-hmm. it was just, it was just confusing to him. Like, well, if you just sit down and tell your brain to do it like you'll just do it like this isn't that hard and obviously that's how it worked for him uh and so he was he kind of really couldn't understand and also he was very busy with his career and so he wasn't around very much more of a passive kind of go along in his personal life guy and so my mom kind of a loud jewish critical mother uh with probably undiagnosed adhd was the primary influence And she would, you know, go with the criticism and shame route or route, Mm -hmm. however we say these things. And, you know, would try to just be like, well, like you just need to do it. And everyone else is doing it and all those things. And, you know, thinking that enough punishment and criticism and pain would get me to do it. uh, But it didn't, right? It just sort of built my own internal shame. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have siblings too? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. And ha- what, did they have AD or do they have ADHD or showed any symptoms when they were younger? Um, no, no. And they've no. all seen, they've all seen my YouTube channels and interestingly, their spouses have both since seeing my content have been like, huh, <laughs> actually, I realized this for myself. But for them, I that love was that. never... You're, you're contagious in the best way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but for them, that was never an issue. So I had two older sisters. They're the sweetest in the world. They're incredibly smart and talented. And they were just getting along fine. So that had to have been hard, too, to see it in your own household where your sisters and your siblings seem like they're doing fine, but inside you're you're struggling. Well, you know, what's interesting, Nikki, is that uh, what I've noticed with myself and with a number of the inattentive ADHD clients that I've worked with is that there tends to be a slightly greater uh, bend towards passivity and to uh, more observation kind of that quiet struggling and going along with things. And so if you're if you're good at sort of observing, it can be a real big asset to have older siblings who are doing all the same classes you're going to take and who are achieving and succeeding with them. And so I got really good at just shutting my trap and hiding all of my struggles and just knowing that between the help from my sisters having gone through the courses, the help from my friends who were really smart, that I would be able to combining sort of my own natural test taking skills to pull off good grades, even though I had no system, no study skills, no ability to get myself to do the crap that I wanted to do. And that was causing me so much problems. So it wasn't it was actually a feature 
sort of to have that. That's fascinating, right? That that yeah, and, and I that is that's so interesting. Great insight. I think that really reflects per, uh, a particularly um, reflects a lot of folks who who are listening. I'm sure you see yourselves and hear yourselves in this experience because it is uh, y- y- when you're talking about uh, you know high school, uh, middle school, and high school you're able to like uh, remora to a shark, right? You're able to glide along and and take advantage of the systems and the practices in place and leverage your family who has clearly been through the experience before in order to appear like a high achiever uh, or, or a, a successful academician uh, early. But that's kind of a veil, right? What happens when you make that transition and you're faced with a higher education. <laughs> right, mm. totally. And I think um, moving to college university, a few things happened. So one is I didn't have the, the parents breathing down my back, right? So you lose, you lose that pressure. Um, and so in the absence of that, I realized that I was just shit tired of doing all this. Like I was done. I was done playing the game and, you know, and then college is much more, is much less structured. Uh, and you know, it was, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for it. And I think, I think Pete and Nikki, I want to share one thing because this is a, um, other people might have experienced this, but a symptom or a sort of second degree symptom of, inattentive ADHD or all ADHD is that there were things that I had to do to make my way through school uh, that really impacted my self-worth. So let me give you an example. Um, My notes were a complete mess of chicken scratch with major, major sections missing. And so I always needed to borrow someone's notes to study for tests. And so as we all do, we're going to leverage whatever resources we have at our disposal. I was like, Oh, I'm charming. I'll just go and, you know, be a little bit fake and charming and get that really smart girl or smart guy to lend me their notes or to study with me. And I had to do that on assignments. I had to ask people like, oh, what are you writing in that essay about Macbeth? Because I couldn't figure it out. And people even sent me examples of things. And, you know, well, I and then I had this strategy where I would make friends with the teachers. This is so bad. I would I would like literally intentionally, this is like a salesperson or something, I'd build a relationship with my teachers. And then I would ask really cleverly scripted questions that would give me information without incriminating the teacher. So things like, here was my favorite question, all right? Uh, So, Ms. Teacher, I'm, you know, I've been studying really hard for this history test, and there's so much on it. You know, you know, there's all these dates, and like when all the wars started, and people were born and died, and then there's kind of all the people and the key events, like, like, do you think I need to really focus on these dates? And they would, they would be like, oh, I wouldn't worry too much about the exact numbers. <laughs> and that would save me hours of studying time. And it would help me figure out that they're focused more on the high level themes and what happened. And I would literally like find out what's on the test in various ways by asking these sort of leading questions. Uh, but 
while it was effective, quote unquote, in the short term as an adaptation, it was eating away at my soul because I just felt like a slimy, you know, manipulative person to find a way to survive these situations. And so that was sort of a hidden cost. What is so interesting, excuse me, about that situation is, and this was before you were actually diagnosed with ADHD, right? So yeah, because I wasn't diagnosed was until 34, on. right? Yeah, yeah. So when I, 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 part of the people that I work with are college students. And what you just described is exactly what I tell them to go do. Because I, because, but they also know they have ADHD, right? So it's an accommodation. So what I want them to do is as part of your accommodations, you know, you go talk to the professor and find out what's going to be on the exams, how you should study, what you've been studying and get that information and let them know that you exactly what you're saying. Like you really are trying and you want to figure out how to make this work. And a perfect example is I have a person right now who is in a um, computer science class and he's not a computer science person, right? And so the first two midterms he had, he didn't do as well as he wanted to do. Now, I would say he passed. So I'd be like, hey, congratulations. You got to see, <laughs> like, at least you're not failing this class, right? But he wanted a better grade. But what his frustration was is that he studied so hard for these two midterms and he wasn't getting the results that he wanted. And so now for the final that's coming up in May, he's doing that. He's going in, he's talking to the professor. He's saying, this is how I studied before this, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I don't want to waste my time. How can you help me? So it's just a really interesting point to see the different feelings when you know you have ADHD and when you don't know you have ADHD, because you felt like you were doing something wrong, right? Or slimy, like you said. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think, I think the point is valid, right? Which is that they were highly effective strategies, right? Yeah. So, so right. the strategies and the advice that you're giving these clients is phenomenal advice. And I think, I think, as you said, the differential is if you know that it's because you have ADHD and maybe you're even open with some people about it and you kind of know your strengths and weaknesses, then it's one thing. If you're just yeah. like, if you just, if the only explanation that you have is that I'm lazy, think that the rules don't apply to me and, you know, have yeah. no discipline, then when you're using your charm or whatever adaptations yeah. you have to manipulate people to help you because you're too lazy to do it yourself, that's where it really starts to create this sort of, you know, wear away at your personality and your soul. Yeah. Wow, what? how interesting. I, it is interesting that the whole sort of pivot between uh, compensation and strategy, right? Like I'm, I'm compensating for something and I don't understand why my brain works this way. So I'm going to do whatever it takes feels like an act of desperation, even though knowing all the facts beforehand about your own brain, it becomes it becomes an actual strategy. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Like, what is it? What are the elements in uh, that that you found, and and we can sort of stage this in the the first time around, the second time around, even the third time around, uh, your undergrad uh, that that caused the inattentive part of your brain to struggle. Maybe we should start with a conversation about your inattentive ADHD. So I'd say four things, and I've touched on one or two of them already, right? So the 
the disintegration of your old support structure and then the needing to establish a new one. I didn't have a good model for establishing a new one. Mine felt a little bit manipulative. And so, uh, and I have some social anxiety and those sorts of things. And so that was a struggle for me Two, the lack of structure, right? Just it's much more up to your ability to manage your own time versus go to class from these hours, do your homework because it's due tomorrow. Um, and also, you know, there's there's just a lot less structure in the assignments. You know, it's three assignments due in two, you know, two months each versus a bunch of multiple choice tests at the end of each week. Sure. Uh, and then three is uh, the ability without the oversight to do some things that F up your dopamine, right? So I was drinking a ton. Then I started smoking cigarettes. And then I started using pot and all these things to kind of try to cope with my uncomfortable emotions. But one of the things I always work with my students now on is that we need to we need to cut back on the amount of artificial dopamine overstimulation that we give our brains because our brains can't appreciate the dopamine from achieving something personally meaningful, right? Like that eudaimonia, mm. not the hedonic experience uh, when we're just blasting them with so much overstimulating stuff. Uh, so I'd say that was number three and I can share number four if you want. Share number four and then we'll dig in. Okay. Number four was I didn't do what I was interested in. So I wanted to do psychology because that's what I've always been interested in. My mom, who you know was a baby boomer and went to college in the 70s, uh, said, you know, in the 70s, psychology was just something that like, you did. It had no practical value in the world at the time, at least to her understanding. And you end up just blaming your parents for everything in your life. So it was a very Freudian based <laughs> right. teaching. Right. So she's like, right. you're not going to Harvard and studying a useless degree. That's just going to have you blame us for all the problems in your life. And so we need that interest based uh, desire. And yeah. without it, it was just like, cool. So you want me to work my butt off, manipulate my way into finding out what's on the test and getting other more disciplined students to help me so that I can get good grades so that I can go and work an 80 hour a week job that I hate. I'm sorry. Count me out. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Well, and you bring up a really good point. This doesn't happen very often, but I do see it. I have seen it in my practice with, with college students where they are really torn between what mom and dad want and what they want. And so I just think it's really interesting that you bring that up. I've, I've seen it where, well, they don't think this would be a good degree or, and then going back to that conversation of, but what, what is it that you really want to do? What do you want to, to study, you know, um, because we know with the ADHD brain, if they're not interested in it, <laughs> they're not going to do it or they're going to avoid it. And all those procrastination and all of that, all of those issues are going to come really hard and then they're going to fail the class and the parents are even more like what happened i mean it's just a vicious cycle uh so i do i, I agree with you 100 you've got to find something you're interested in and that you're really passionate about and it may not be college it may be something else and that's okay you know I, everybody has a different relationship with this this experience but i i do have to ask do you remember the day you received your diagnosis yeah very clearly tell me about it uh, it was, it was liberating. Um, I had a, I had a non-traditional path to a diagnosis. 
I, I had experienced ADHD meds shortly before I got diagnosed. And it was, it was, it was in some sense, I, I, I realized that this was something that might be affecting me backwards because the meds made such a difference that then I started researching ADHD. And I think that this is something that happens with a lot of us with inattentive ADHD, you know, the popular, the popular conception around ADHD is, you know, a tigger, a five-year-old boy bouncing off the walls, unruly. And if you had asked me even a six months or a year earlier to rate on a scale of one to a hundred, what my likelihood of having ADHD is, I mean, I would have put it at a zero. Like, it's just like, it never would have occurred to me because it just always represented the, these hyper overdone, you know, stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, uh, I ended up, uh, when my job was on the line and this whole thing, I ended up borrowing some ADHD meds from a friend, uh, which no one should do, but that was, I was desperate. And, and it was literally just to get through a week of having to stay late at my job. So I didn't get fired. Uh, and it literally, I took the meds and this was the first time I wasn't even aware of ADHD meds. I didn't try them in college or anything. Like this is the first time at like 34 years old. And like, I just fell and fell and fell down this rabbit hole. And I emerged in this parallel universe where I could direct my attention on command to something that wasn't amazingly interesting, but just because I had to work on it. It was mind blowing. It's pretty powerful. And so, yeah, so then, then I started researching ADHD and then I went and had a psychiatrist appointment shortly thereafter. And the diagnosis, you know, was, I'd say there were two main things. Um, one was uh, a sense of relief, right? There was suddenly, suddenly a lot more of my background made sense because I never, I never fully jibed with the, I don't think, I think I'm too good to do it and I'm lazy and I, you know, all these things. Like I wanted to do the work. I wanted to read the book. It would be a lot less stressful if I just read the thing and could do it. And so I never, so I finally had an answer that suddenly everything else made sense. And then secondly, I had this experience, this emotion uh, that I hadn't felt in a while and that many people might not be feeling at certain times. And that was hope. I was like, wow, Mm -hmm. I actually, if I can direct my attention at will, maybe, just maybe, I could start realizing some of the potential that deep down in my heart, in my soul, I know that I have, but I've been unable to tap it until now. Hmm. It changed your life. I, you know, I was, it, it's interesting. It makes me think I, I, uh, I, I was joking with uh, uh, Melissa, Discord mom in the chat room this morning about, about the, the stage of, of becoming aware of ADHD medication. And I, I love your story because it reminds me again, if, if I have any opportunity I have to bring up the South Park underpants gnomes, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do it because, you know, these gnomes, they have this Aaron's business like, plan. I don't know what you're oh, talking no, about, but this go is great. ahead with your story. <laughs> it is. This is exactly why it's so important to me. Underpants gnomes are stealing all of the town's underpants and they have this giant mine underground that's full of mountains of underpants. And and they're asked at one point, what is your plan with these underpants? And they put up a, a chart like a flow chart. And it says, number one, collect underpants. Number two, question mark. Number three, profit. Now, <laughs> 
I I adore this story, it, especially because I think it tells it actually tells a hidden story about ADHD and specifically meds. Uh, my life is falling apart. I don't know how to do the things that other people know how to do. Step two, I find this magical pill. Step three, profit. Step three is unleashing the skills that I feel like I did know all along. Like I knew how to. Uh, I knew how to direct my attention. I was gated from being able to do it before I had this tiny little accommodation in my brain. And that is uh, that is a, a joyous reason to celebrate because I think it 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 really did it, it really defines neurodiversity, right? It really defines the thing that is that is making this brain slightly different from that brain and how slight that difference can unleash massive potential. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Um, your description kind of makes me feel like a little bit of a little bit of a dweeb because so I get these meds, right? And I'm like, whoa, I can focus on command. And so uh, I was so impressed with myself for being able to not get fired from a job. Uh, my family, my mom, literally, I mean, you should hear the excitement in her voice when I've passed like the 12 month mark at a job. Like, you know, you'd think <laughs> that I just like won the state championship or something. She's like, Oh, my goodness, I'm so proud of you. you know, it's like, it's a big deal uh, for her and me. So, you know, meanwhile, I'm just like, wow, I'm not getting fired. I'm actually like getting my work done. And so I was I thought I was at the pinnacle of my potential. So I was just literally getting home from work every day uh, and like smoking weed, eating candy, playing video games. And I did that for like well over a year. Okay. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I, I don't mean to imply that you were in any way a dweeb, but the weed and the candy and the video games might have, have played a part. <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, <laughs> right. right. In your ability to really make use of this newfound um, unlocking of your brain's potential. Well, and it's like, I mean, I think I just had, I think I just had no idea about my own potential. And so yeah. I just really thought that like, holding down a job was like the pinnacle of was my, it? right. Yeah. And I was so impressed with myself and I was making money and I could afford the weed and you know, all this stuff, right. And like, I could afford my own apartment, like, wow. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, because before that, I was living with my aunt uh, as a single divorcee. So, you know, and the funny part is, side note, that like, it's hilarious in our culture that living with your aunt only sounds about 50% as bad as living with your mom as a man, <laughs> as a man in his 30s. And yet it's like 99.9% .9 the same exact thing. But I did. Right. right. Uh, but yeah, I just thought that was the peak of my potential. and. And I was just so impressed. And uh, and then it, it kind of took over a year for me to be like, huh, maybe I can do more than just hold down a job and get blasted every night. You know, I, I, I want to lean in just a little bit on that because there is there are two pieces that that strike me. One is that, uh, you know, just unlocking your brain's potential with medication isn't the whole story, right? The, the rest of the story is, um, something we've talked about many times on this show, which is the ADHD sort of chronological age uh, is is different. Like there's a time warp. We don't age like other, you know, neurotypicals. And so uh, it it is 
possible that what I'm hearing of you, and I don't want to like inappropriately reflect on that, but there was a year of you growing up some more, even as a quote stereotype adult, that there was still room left to left to grow. Is that fair? That's a really great summation, Pete. Uh, yeah, you're you're hundred percent right. It was very much. It was my first time living on my own without someone else. Yeah. Uh, because I think a continuation of kind of my, my strategy was I met a woman in my last year at Harvard and she was great at getting stuff done (laughs) Mm -hmm. and she was great at all the things I was terrible at. And so we formed a fast friendship, right? But I bought some of the emotional support and some of the things that she needed. And so we had this like immediate connection and got married and this whole thing. And it didn't work out after nine and a half years of marriage, part of, you know, a lot doing to ADHD troubles. And I think what happened there is that, you know, not being able to do stuff on my own, as you said, for the first time, I was living on my own, I was having my own apartment, I had to adult, I had to take care of myself, I had to do the grocery shopping, I had to decide what to get up on the week, what time to get up on the weekends. And I really did grow up. And it was it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and some of that might have been cultural. Some of that might have been just contextual for your thrust into a situation where you just, as you say, have to learn to adult. And some of it might have been you're just your brain was still working on, you know, catching up to the to the rest of your body and your context and the world. Like, who knows? But at some point you woke up. And and this is why, as we're talking about education, I, I, I love it if you would reflect a little bit on the difference that you experienced in grad school, how do you how do you sort of recontextualize education as now an adult with inattentive ADHD? Yeah. Um, so I, I there were three things. So firstly, I went back to grad school before I realized before I was diagnosed with ADHD and before I knew that. But three things, three things were there that made it a difference. So one is I went for coaching psychology. So I went to what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I'd I'd always been reading psychology books, self-help, neuroscience, anything to try to figure out mostly just how to help myself, right? Because I didn't understand why I couldn't do things that I wanted to do. Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. How can you want to do something and not be able to get yourself to do it? Like, how many people are involved here, right? So that confused me. And so, one, I was doing something that I was already super interested in. Uh, Two, I was looking to... uh, rewrite the story a little bit in my head, almost have a bit of a redemption after the uh, sugar show that was <laughs> Harvard and dropping out twice and all that. Uh, and so that was number two. And then number three was because it was a, you know, it's almost like a, I mean, it was basically like a master's degree, like it's going to like basically life coaching school, but you know, it's under an academic banner. Mm-hmm. And because it was, because of that topic matter, there was a lot more doing in the coursework. It wasn't just about book knowledge, because what I've discovered with myself and with clients and with a lot of us ADHDers is our gap isn't knowing what to do. We have been ingesting information, listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, reading books, listening to audiobooks. Like we are, we are flooded with all sorts of great strategies, tips, things that we should do. Where we fall down is in the doing. And uh, because it was a much more doing oriented program, I got a chance to overcome that gap. 
You know, it's interesting with inattentive ADHD too. something that I've noticed. And I don't know if you, I'm getting, I'm getting the sense that maybe you did notice this. Part of the thing I think is so confusing about getting diagnosed with ADHD when you're inattentive is I know with my own experience with my daughter, teachers didn't believe it because she's so smart. So there's this like academic piece that's really confusing because you, you can have like, you even mentioned this earlier about you can really take tests really well. So you could get the information, get the test done and you would be done. So it is, it's, can you expand just a little bit more about the inattentive part, not just so much on, on education, but just in life in general, like even now as a coach, like inattentive ADHD, what makes that different? Yeah, it's a great question, Nikki. And I appreciate the opportunity. So firstly, to your first point around your daughter, um, I think that's actually one of the biggest hurdles to proper diagnosis today, that there was a time when they taught physicians and other di- you know, mental health professionals that can diagnose that uh, there needs to be a significant impairment in life in the sense that if they've been able to pull off good grades, then they can't have ADHD. And mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen that with a lot of people in my audience, they'll, they'll post that sort of thing. Like, well, I went to get a diagnosis, but so-and-so said, cause I have a master's degree, I couldn't have ADHD. And, oh my uh, goodness. yeah. Oh my and goodness. it's, it's so, it's so troubling and so saddening. And so I definitely had that experience. I mean, the psychiatrist who diagnosed me was like, I'm sorry, how did you survive until 34 years old? Like given mm-hmm. all these things. And I just said, you know, right? Adaptations, compensation, yeah. workarounds. You coped. I coped. And, and so that, that was one. Uh, but then in terms of the inattentive, so I think what's really interesting, uh, and part of me kind of hopes that over time, we'll move more towards a split model around ADHD back to, you know, before the DSM-3R and the mm-hmm. DSM-4, when they lumped it all under ADHD. Because, you know, the if you imagine at the one end of the spectrum with the hyperactive impulsive, right, you've got all this energy, you've got kind of this impulsiveness, possibly more of this extroversion, gregariousness, whatever it is, this energy. And so my clients that I've worked with that have hyperactive impulsive side, like getting stuff done is not really a challenge for them. It's reining in their brain and, you know, stopping just the cycling. But if they've got 10 things doing their to-do list, like, man, they can move through a lot of these things. And, and so what happens when we hear descriptions of ADHD in the media or people that are focused on combined or just the hyperactive side is that a lot of us inattentive can feel uh, like, is that really me? Do I really have ADHD? Are they talking about me? And so one of the main differences that I've noticed is that for a lot of us inattentive type or the combined that have the inattentive presentations there is just, you know, it's the ability to get stuff done, the ability to take an intention and follow through to the completion of it, right? And that is one of the absolute biggest things. You know, while that certainly comes up with the other presentations, it's not nearly as pronounced. So how do you deal with that now? Because you have a coaching business. Yep. You um, have a YouTube channel. You're doing a lot of stuff in the ADHD community. How do you manage your inattentive ADHD yourself? This was this was really life changing for me. Um, so the short answer is that I made productivity on tough tasks 
a habit. Mm. And so let me expand on that a little Mm -hmm. bit. What holds all of our goals back is what I call tough tasks. Those are the tasks that we want to procrastinate on that are difficult for our brains. And when we don't differentiate tough tasks from the minutia, we then spend our energy pell-mell. And the email you need to follow up on or this thing or that thing, that's not, that's not what's keeping you from getting promoted. That's not what's keeping you from starting a side hustle or growing your business. It's those, it's those tough tasks that people avoid that really stand in the way. And so one was I minimized my ask for myself to productivity for just 8% of my day. Because I am so stubborn and oppositional that I refuse to stick to any program that puts me in a box and asks me to be super disciplined all the time. So I said, okay, great. These tough tasks are kind of that 80-20. These are the ones that are really going to push the needle forward. And so I said, okay, I'm going to focus on those. And I'm going to put all my energy and mind on that. Then I'm going to build a habit around it. And, you know, that for me uh, was life-changing. But what I've noticed is that they're the traditional productivity programs that are out there in the mass market uh, aren't made for ADHDers. So I have started, I have started, tried and dropped Stephen Covey's productivity time management system, David Allen's getting things done, Brendan Bruchard's, Tony Robbins, uh, Cal Newport's and time boxing. And yeah. And so it's just, you know, we end up with these kind of productivity systems that don't work for us. And what I've started teaching people is that, you know, we were taught this neurotypical productivity system, which I summarize with three slogans, right? Just do it. No pain, no gain. <laughs> and it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. And like, we've all heard those things, right? And the reality is that like, if you don't have ADHD, at some level, those kind of work and you're like, okay, cool. I'm just going to just do it. Right. And you just get your stuff done. Uh, but obviously with ADHDers, that doesn't work. And so I've looked at sort of those three slogans and built a three-step framework that kind of counteracts those for what tends to work with ADHD brains. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you going to share the steps? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. So um, on the just do it piece, right? Like a lot of us think like, if I'm just motivated enough, if I just have enough motivation, if I just have enough desire, that should translate to action, right? And the reality is, though, that lack of motivation or the ability to follow through with ADHD is not caused by a lack of desire, willpower, and discipline, right? It's just, it's a, it's a neurochemical thing, right? And so instead of that, right, all of us kick into gear when? When someone expects something from us soon. Yeah, Yeah. right. External motivators. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so the first step of the framework is just people power that we perform when there is short-term accountability, right? And you guys have your accountability anchors. And so I think anyone that's running successful ADHD programs uh, understands the need for this, right? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but a lot of us don't do it, right? And why don't we do it? Because growing up, accountability sucked. Yeah. But accountability sucked because it wasn't our goal. 
We had ineffective tools, like just do it. And we were shamed and criticized right. for not doing it. And so that, that made us think that short-term accountability to other people was bad. The accountability wasn't the problem. Those variables were. And as adults, we can flip those variables and really leverage the idea of motivating accountability. So the first step is just people power. Love that. So step two around the no pain, no gain is that there's so much talk about this no pain, no gain. And that, you know, if you really want something, you just need to like put your nose to the grindstone and grit it out and do this whole thing, right? And, you know, there's this whole hustle culture and, and this whole thing that really... If you really care, you'll make time oh my for God. it. it right? like, I, whoever I said that, that has <laughs> no idea that like living with ADHD and wanting to do something hurts all the time anyway. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so the second part of the framework is just easy prevails. So what happens is that, you know, the law of least effort, right? So, I mean, yeah, it was I it. first first created by Deepak Chopra and then popularized uh, again in Atomic Habits by James Clear. But the reality is that we are drawn to do the things that take the least amount of effort. And what happens is in this no pain, no gain brainwashing, we don't, we think that it's cheating to make things easier for us. We think it's cheating to do something that comes naturally to us and that we enjoy doing. We think it's cheating to use some of the strategies that you're talking about, Nikki, and that I used where you don't have to be great at everything. You're allowed to leverage other people. You're allowed to do the things you're really good at and delegate or outsource or otherwise partner to fill in your weaknesses. And so that's step two is just to start using a lot of tactics to make getting tough tasks done way easier and that that's okay to do. I love that. I love that because I know we see this in our clients is they do sometimes, I say this very nicely, make things harder than they need to <laughs> overcomplicate. And I think that there is this need, what you just said really resonates with almost this guilt that if it's not hard, I shouldn't, I'm not doing it right. So I got to make it harder. And I love that you're saying, wait, no, 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 it's okay to make it easier. Like that's, that's what we're trying to do. So I, I that's a really great message. I hope people hear that. Well, and it goes right in with, with something we've been talking about elsewhere. Like if it's really that hard and it's, and you're really like, like it, it's something that's really hard to do. There is a class of tasks that are really hard and maybe you don't need to do them. Like at least it gives you an opportunity to gut check, you know, should this be something that I do or do I really need to rethink how this gets done? And maybe that means it's not me. Okay, so what's the third one? I'm really excited. <laughs> so the third one, I'm I, I, this, one, this one I particularly like, right? So um, I argue that productivity is a skill. Right. And the way that I define it is just that what you intend to do, you can get yourself to do it. Right. If you want to do something, you can get yourself to do it. Cool. So that's the skill of productivity or the muscle of productivity, as you want to call it. Right. So here's the thing growing up, we were all given these neurotypical slogans, right? That are as good as a can of beans for us, just don't work. Right. And so we kind of suck at the skill of productivity. The skill of I intend to do this, now I'm going to follow through, especially on the inattentive side, right? So now, how do we get better at any skill? How do you improve a skill? Practice. Perfect. All right. Nikki, gold star, points. Yay. There you go. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, uh, so we practice, right? There's only one problem. We're not supposed to be practicing this at our age. We're supposed to already know 
how to do stuff. There's like there's like heavy air quotes around every word that you just said in my mm-hmm. head. We're yeah. su- we're supposed to do know how to do stuff like that is. Yeah. Oh, it makes my so it, yeah. True. Yeah. It's yeah. so hard exactly. to hear that from an outside voice. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so um, and so what most of us attempt to do to resolve this, and I'm speaking from personal experience, right, is we're we're given something to do with a, with a date that it's due. We then suck at going through the process, right? And so we're behind. And except we know secretly from experience that we can pull it off when panic mode strikes and we can pull off a last minute save. And so what we end up doing is our solution to the fact that we're not supposed to be practicing this skill as an adult is to basically hide, to hide and hope that we're not found out and hope that we can pull off a last minute save. Here's the problem with this. It's actually, it doesn't give you practice. It's like trying to drive with a blindfold. You actually have no idea what's what's working and not what turning the wheel a few degrees works. And so you can't actually get better at the skill of productivity. So you stay stuck at that level. And so the third part in the framework is we need a special kind of practice. And that's pressure-free practice. The reality is that it's a very pressureful skill to learn, right? If you're going to commit to do something publicly, like you tell your spouse or you tell your boss that you're going to do something and you don't follow through, there is a big reputational consequence. There's there's other consequences that can come along. And so it's not fair to ask somebody to get good at a skill by throwing them in to a live game, throwing them into the Super Bowl. And so what we need, but we need to find an environment, right? Like your accountability anchors, other environments where we can practice the skill of productivity in a pressure-free environment with other ADHDers who understand our challenges and who appreciate our wins, because that's the only way that you can learn. Back to the driving analogy, the driving blindfolded, Driving is a complex skill with a lot of pressure, right? If you do it wrong, you're going to get in an accident, you're going to die, whatever. And so there's a whole process to provide pressure-free practice, which is driving permits, supervised learning, you know, even those like funny triangles that go on the top of driving school cars. If you have that experience, you don't have to learn it on your own. You don't have to do it on your own. You have support. You have someone there that's guiding you. And in the absence of that, as my 15 years of trying and starting and failing every different productivity system that I could find showed me, it's really hard to do on our own without that pressure-free practice environment to hone our skill and our muscle. Wow, that's great. It, it, it is. I was, you know, I was reflecting on this um, not long ago. You're we listening to a story of a, um, you know, a fantastic pianist who's, you know, concert level pianist. And, um, you know, she was reflecting on her experience of the piano. And and I, I share an experience because I play the piano, too. And I had a, a very similar experience where, you know, you get to this point in your practice where the demands of practice from parents, from piano teachers, from teachers at school, music teachers at school, um, the demands on the daily hours long exercises, that pressure becomes so great that, uh, it th- it becomes too easy to find the way out in my brain, right? It's way too easy to find the way out because it damages the thing that I'm practicing toward. It damages my desire for music. Mm. And, and then 
uh, I was awash for many years and didn't practice and didn't play until some trigger, some, as our, our friend Dr. Dodge continues to remind us, there is a readiness for change. And that was, oh, I do remember I love music. And then practice changes. Then practice becomes directed. Then practice becomes effortless, right? It becomes pressure-free because it's pulling me in a direction, not pushing me in a direction. Uh, which I feel is, like, yeah, sorry, I finished. No, no, go ahead. No, I, uh, I was just going to say, I feel like, I feel like I really want you to like break out a piano now. And like, <laughs> I do too. Yeah. Like, I think the end of the show should be Pete practicing on the piano. Totally. <laughs> and then we need to get a picture of Aaron driving his car. Yeah, right. hundred <laughs> percent. Exactly. That's Thank it. you so much for being here and sharing your story and 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 sharing these great uh, uh, ideas too about how to think differently about productivity and talking about inattentive ADHD. I mean, we we covered a lot. We covered a lot in yeah. this show, yeah, and we, really we appreciate you being here so much. Thank you so so much for taking the time to to share share you with our audience. We appreciate it. Uh, it's just a dream come true, and I'm so grateful and appreciate you and Pete and um, the whole team, right? And so uh, the other thing too is like, can we just in the audience take a moment to acknowledge you guys have been running this podcast since what, 2010? Yeah, something right right around I mean, there. can we just all take a moment to appreciate how amazing that is? I mean, the stick-to-itiveness and the consistency and the commitment. I mean, that is hard for any of our, anyone's brains, let alone an ADHD brain. And I just want to acknowledge both of you and the team, because that really is remarkable. Thank you. Very Thank kind, you so yeah. much. Thank you very it's much. Very, very kind. That's really great. Really appreciate that. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, I'm so glad we had this conversation. Uh, I'm so glad that you agreed to join us. And I hope this is not the last time we talk. I'm sure we will be able to manufacture some other things to talk about on this show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, everyone, for downloading and listening to this show. We sure appreciate you and your time and your attention. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and put links to everything Aaron does in the show notes. Make sure you check those out. Uh, but I, I will go ahead and uh, pitch, if this is the right place, check me, Aaron, hiddenadhd.com. Yeah, you can just search Hidden ADHD on Google and you can come up with our TikTok, which has over 100,000 people. And the whole point, it's hidden just because if you have inattentive, it goes under the radar. And you can check out our website. Um, I've got a half hour long masterclass where I kind of walk through the that three-step framework in more detail. Uh, so would welcome you to check it out. We love uh, spreading the word of great communities uh, that are beyond our own. Please uh, check out uh, Aaron's uh, uh, communities, especially especially TikTok, because we don't especially we don't truck TikTok. there at all, really. So we're never going to be no, on TikTok. we're we're not a we're not no. a TikTok community. So <laughs> definitely check out here on TikTok. Uh, I can definitely see Nikki doing some dances. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> so can I? I'm just saying it's out there. Uh, a pressure free practice. Uh, thank you for your time <laughs> and attention, everybody. On don't, <laughs> don't forget if you have something to contribute to this conversation we're heading over to the show talk channel on our discord server and you can join us right there by becoming a supporting member at the deluxe level on behalf of nikki kinzer and aaron croft i'm pete wright and we'll see you right back here next week on taking control the adhd podcast mm-hmm.